there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I have two students here with me today. We're going to talk about multi-shock storms, I think. Yep. Let's do some introductions. Uh, Devin, <laughs> also known as Sonic, how about if you introduce yourself and tell us, uh, first of all, since, this is, since you're the star of the podcast, tell us who you are, where you're going, what your plans are in the future, and how in the world you came up with this podcast, and then we'll introduce Christian. How does that sound? Sounds great. So my name is Devin Sheffield. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. Um, we're talking about automated or automatic implantable cardioverter defibrilla defibrillators. Um, I guess why I'm kind of going into this is because I was born with heart problems and have been really fascinated with the heart and all of the aspects about that. And so going forward, I'm really hoping to go into pediatric cardiology. And so pretty much anything psychiatry and, and heart related, I'm fairly interested in. Oh, very cool. And Christian. Hey there, Christian Devereaux, uh, OMS4 from the Idaho College of Medicine. And uh, I'm emergency medicine bound, so um, just excited to be here. Good to have you here. Now, uh, what you can't see in the background is Christian has this uh, kind of unusual way of just like starting to stare at people. And, and you just kind of want to laugh. So if, if you hear us just pause for a few minutes during this podcast and then bust out laughing, uh, you know why. Now, second thing about Christian is he uh, is infamous. He's related to uh, one of our former students, Cam, who did a handful of podcasts about a year ago now, or two a year ago now, I believe, and uh, very much enjoyed working with him and have had similar experiences with both the two of you. Thanks for being here. So let's talk a little bit about um, these AICDs. Tell, tell me a little bit about why you might need an AICD and what does it do? Yeah, so an AICD, it's a lot like a pacemaker in that it, set, it sits in the chest monitoring the heart rate. And what it does is if it notices an abnormal arrhythmia, an abnormal rhythm or something, then it'll shock the heart to get it back in. And so you would need one of these because sometimes you can have lethal arrhythmias where you would die if you don't get shocked within a reasonable amount of time. And so having one of uh, an ICD in your chest already there is a life-saving treatment. Now, how long have these AICDs been around? Do you know? I don't. I know we started seeing articles showing up, I think in the, I want to say in the 90s. So I don't know if they were around before that or not. And the idea then, just to make sure I understand this, is if somebody has the tendency to develop an arrhythmia, they get an implantable device, and it can cardiovert them. Now, cardioversion is painful. Yeah. Have you been cardioverted before? Several times, yeah. Tell me what it was like to be cardioverted. Well, thankfully, I, I, they usually put you out before you're cardioverted in a hospital setting. And so I've never been conscious during the actual shocking. But I have woken up after that and had burn marks on my chest from being shocked, and that doesn't feel super great. So burn marks, bad. Yep. And uh, was it you that told me you had uh, ribs broken as well at one point? Or was uh, somebody else? No, I Not haven't you. had ribs broken. No, you did have part of your ribs cut out. Well, I mean, I had open heart surgery, so if you count that. <laughs> if, you, if you count that. Okay, so so this is, is fairly meaningful to you. You and I had an interesting discussion. And I, I think during the discussion, I said something along the lines of, really? Does that sound familiar? I mean, I think that's happened a few times. <laughs> and, and in this case, what it was 
You were explaining to me that you were so anxious about having an arrhythmia that you increased the possibility of having one or that you actually may have put yourself into arrhythmia. Yeah, actually I, I did put myself into an arrhythmia because since, since all my heart surgeries, I have a lot of scar tissue um, in my heart. And so I have all these aberrant paths that can create um, arrhythmias. And so I'm just more prone to them and that kind of stresses me out. And when I was younger, thinking about my heart would kind of make me tachycardic. And because I'm like hypersensitive to my heart, I would feel that increase in heart rate. And so it would stress me out more, which would increase my heart rate and eventually put me into an arrhythmia. The literature around the ACD implantations seems to focus on three different topics. And I, I felt like as we read some of the articles and went through these articles, these three different areas weren't well separated for me. We're, we're gonna do some high yield stuff in just a moment on panic disorder. Christian's gonna jump in and do that, but I wanna set the stage just a little bit. First of all, um, we read articles about classical conditioning, right? And in the general population, and I wanna make sure I've got the right source here. This was sort of a fascinating article to me. Um, who was it? Here's my notes here. Uh, I don't have the author on it. But the question was, does uh, panic develop due to adverse events, right? So the classical conditioning idea. And the, the premise of the article was, in the general population, two to three percent of the population has panic disorder. If you look at people that have had AICDs placed and have been shocked, and I'm not sure if I have that right, uh, either shocked or not shocked, but I think it's shocked, about 16% of those patients develop panic disorder. Yeah. So that's one group of people. Mm -hmm. The second group of people, there was an article that was done by, uh, let's see if I can find this one, Ford, and this was out of East Carolina. And uh, what they said was PTSD was under-recognized. Now this was a, uh, an approach to see if web-based CBT could be helpful. They made the argument that uh, you have this uh, very difficult event, this traumatic event being kicked in the chest by a mule. I think the first time I heard that, somebody describing to me the, the nonstop panic and fear they had, they were talking to me about the feeling of having been kicked in the chest by a horse or a mule, right? It hurts mm -hmm. and you're awake, you're not put under for this, the ACD just kicks, right? Yeah. Um, the, the group, Ford and their group, made the argument that PTSD leads to more shocks, the argument you made, mm -hmm. and that more shocks means you're more likely to die over time. Does that sound right? Yeah. I asked this question earlier, and I don't think we have a good answer to this. Some people who have the shocks have, have been diagnosed with panic disorder. Other people that have the shocks have been diagnosed with PTSD. Now the criteria seem to have a lot of overlap in this in this arena. I won't ask you to tackle this now, um, but that is a challenge, right? Yeah. PTSD versus panic disorder. Mm -hmm. Sound right? And then the third set of symptoms, and I think uh, Dunbar, the group out of Emory, there was a nurse practitioner, I think, who did a bunch of work in Emory. There were three or four different groups that seemed to do the most work. The group in Florida, I think, did a lot of work, and Dunbar out of uh, Emory did a fair amount of work. And as I track some of her work, um, I think she makes the case that whether or not you have 
uh, panic disorder or PTSD, there's also this uh, underlying presence of either depression or anxiety. And that's, that may be completely outside of panic disorder and PTSD. Does that sound about right, too? Yeah. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad that I'm on the right page. You have some to add, though. Yeah, and we might talk about this more later, but I think the issue is even further complicated by lack of reporting from the patients because mm. they may not report the symptoms because they think it's just their normal coping mechanism or they may think they're limited or, or change how they live and they think that's normal and so they don't take it as part of the panic disorder or PTSD. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and that's, that's a fairly common issue within psychiatric uh, conditions too. So, so I think the other challenge we had with the data, there were a number of me uh, meta-analysis that were completed. We may or may talk about those as well. But I felt, I, I felt like there wasn't a clear distinction between we're treating PTSD with this intervention, we're treating depression and anxiety with this intervention, we're treating panic disorder with this intervention. Is that, what was your read on that? Yeah, the lines were really blurred and um, whether or not they just had panic disorder or PTSD or anxiety and depression or all of the above, like wasn't super specified in a lot of the articles. Yeah. And I don't know if it necessarily needs to be a lot of the time because a lot of the treatments overlap Seems and like so it. it's not as crucial at nailing down those specific points all the time. Although I, I'm, I'm going to beg to differ that the better data we have, the better outcomes we have. But I think there's, it, it, I think quite often in medicine we're stuck in a situation much like this, right? A lot of the biggest studies that I think have been done to date, there was a, a, something called the Cabbage Patch trial, right? C-A-B-G patch. Um, I thought that was a very clever name for a trial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, especially if you remember Cabbage Patch Kids. Wasn't that the name of Donald's uh -huh. like yeah. 40 years ago or something like that? All right. So so the Cabbage Patch trial had about 250 and growth, what, 210 in the other arm, something along mm -hmm. those lines. And that's by far our biggest trial to date, comparing uh, people with uh, post-cabbage AICD mm -hmm. versus non-AICD and the psychological outcomes, right? And so we don't have big data on this, and so what we're left with is trying to figure out, is there enough overlap that the studies have been done in a, in a similar setting then apply? And I think that's kind of where, we're, where you're headed is, this is our best data to date. We think that it overlaps because, right? Yeah. Does, that, does that sound like where you're headed? Yeah. I like that. I'll go with that then. Great, me too. All right, let's talk about panic disorder. Now, if you're getting ready for the shelf exam, and you want to be able to remember the key aspects of panic disorder, how would you go about doing that? Kristen, I think this is your cue. You're up to bat. Yeah, so uh, it's part of the anxiety family of disorders. Um, so starting with panic attack, my understanding from reading the DSM is basically it's just a surge of an intense fear, um, rapid onset, usually resolves within about a half hour or so. Um, is unexpected. And... There are some variations where you have expected events, but for, for our purposes, we'll go with the unexpected. Um, there are, I believe, 13 symptoms um, you typically can experience chiefly. Um, we're talking about heart, so we'll go tachycardia, palpitations, things like that. Um, also diaphoresis, um, chest pain and pressure or discomfort, um, nausea, dizziness, things like that. Uh, I think the, the stem that I remember most is it's kind of a, a younger woman typically keep showing up to the ER with, you know, reports of chest pain and she can't breathe and things like that. Um, so that's going to be your, your most common patient as well. So, and then in order to kind of transition from an attack to the disorder, um, it's recurrent. So 
uh, meaning more than one. And you also have um, significant fear about either having an attack or the consequences of having that attack. Um, or another uh, distinguishing thing was it uh, required like significant um, maladaptive change in your behaviors and uh, kind of how you live your life. So people stop driving, people stop going to the store. Exactly, yeah. Things. Have you ever talked to anybody that had a panic attack? Uh, my wife has them, actually. So Really? Did yeah. you tell her that you were preparing for this podcast? Uh, no, because I didn't want to trigger one. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. One of the things that I hear, and, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this now, knowing that. By the way, is your wife going to, are you going to be in trouble that you've mentioned this? Nope. Okay. Hopefully not. Maybe I won't tell her. <laughs> Um, one of the things I hear is the comment, I thought I was going to die. This fear of death is a huge part of having a panic attack. And, and the symptoms that you talked about, I think about this autonomic surge, mm, yep. right? Where everything that you described, whether it's tremulousness, whether it's shaking, whether it's palpitations or you know, elevated heart rate, whether it's dry mouth, whatever the case might be, to me, all of this sounds like uh, fight or flight on steroids. So being as a being a person that has a tough time remembering 37 details right. in 48 criteria of 3,700 uh, diagnostic categories. I try to keep it simple. And so to me, I think about what happens, the question I'll ask is, what happens when you have a panic attack? And what I look for are those physical symptoms and then the wind down, right? There, there does need to be kind of an end on it. I, I thought it was closer to 10 minutes on the countdown for a panic attack to end, but that may be an older version of the DSM or an older version of my mind that doesn't remember things well. Uh, I'll defer to you. You're the expert. Oh, so. <laughs> That's not the way this works. Um, so, so panic attacks, uh, I think most of the STEM questions, and I didn't give you enough time to really tackle this, I think you've tackled most of the STEM questions, but do you have a sense of where those STEM questions go? Is it usually a treatment question? Uh, is it usually uh, uh, just identify the condition question? What is it you need to know to get this question right most of the time? Yeah, so in my experience, it's just been um, either A, identifying it, like you said, or you can do the treatments. Um, I believe SSRIs are first line, and then you can do abortive therapies with like, um, benzodiazepines, um, either those are more of like a PRN type type situation, but yeah, SSRIs are first line. Um, and then if you're looking to, to treat them long term, uh, combining that with like a CBT therapy is is has the most effect. So. Is there a role for exposure therapy in that as well? It seems like that used to be an answer in the past, but I don't recall at this point in my life. Um, CBT is usually the answer for everything, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I believe so. Any so. sort of uh, anxiety and depression disorder. Okay, uh, good. Thank you very much, and uh, wish your wife, uh, wife well. I do remember one very, very interesting story. I had a, a patient who came in who was quite elderly, and I was in private practice at the time, and this person said something along the lines of, you know, I, I, I said something along the lines of, when did this all start? And the patient said, well, I was like 17 and I had a panic attack and I went to the emergency room and I was looking at her med list and saw no SSRI. And I was like, oh my goodness, this poor lady has been having panic attacks since she was 
like 17 nonstop, and they're very debilitating, right? The agoraphobia that can be, I think that term might not be used as much anymore, but the, the behavioral effects on somebody's life can be very profound, right? Uh, the difference between somebody who lives in their house and comes out of the house. And I think we're going to talk about quality of life in a few minutes with AICDs more specifically. Um, and I, I was just in shock. I just felt horrible for this poor lady. And I said, oh my goodness, you've been having panic attacks since that time. And it was so funny. She reached over to me and put her hand on me and said, oh no, darling. <laughs> the doctor that saw me the first time said, these won't kill you. It's okay. And I never had one after. <laughs> I was, I, I've thought about that a great deal, right? Because I think... Um, and, and perhaps you can speak to this, if your arrhythmias have kicked you into a place of panic or vice versa, and I, I do think that line might be difficult to delineate, that fear of death can be overwhelming. And if, if there's some way that a person can uh, decouple the fear of death with the event, uh, or help somebody decouple that, I do think they've made progress. However, I don't know that that's, I, I think that would be something that would happen in CBT, right? Where you check the facts on something like that. Um, uh, but still that's hard to accept when you're feeling like you're about to die. So anyway, on that note, let's go back to AICDs. How does that sound? Great. Um, I, I wanna talk about, I think first of all, uh, I want you to tell me about multi-shock storm or ICD storm? Yeah, so, so multi-shocks or ICD storms really in its simplest form are just appropriate or inappropriate multiple shocks in a short amount of time. And this happens in probably 10 to 20% of patients that have an AICD in them. And so that can really mess with someone's quality of life, their psychological health, because it can be kind of traumatic. When, when you talk about quality of life, I saw a number of different ways that this has been measured or, or ways that the different groups are trying to measure this. I think the Florida Florida Shock Anxiety Scale, yeah. I think tries to measure quality of life. Tell me about the Florida Shock Anxiety Scale, whatever you can. We couldn't find a copy of the actual scale. Yeah, so from what I understood, I think it, it measures specific aspects like if you've been shocked, was it appropriate or inappropriate? Um, things like that to assess how your psychological health will be after um, an event or how your psychological health will be with an IACD. And has that been able to be used prognostically based on anything you read or does it simply describe where people are at? It's a tool for referral. How's that tool used? I think it was saying, if I remember correctly, that they're, they're finding it, that it could be promising to be used as um, a tool to um, find a prognosis for them. Find a prognosis so it's predictive how people are doing. Coming yeah, um, a lot of people. So, so if we talk about the first condition, there is some data out there that cardiac disease is associated with depression. I, I think that's still out there. It's been a couple of years since I've looked at this. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of people that are going into an AICD have anxiety and depression. I think the Dunbar article said, you know what, interestingly enough, most people that get on an AICD, get, get, get an implantable device, their depression and anxiety after the first year gets better. Mm -hmm. whether, you, whether you have treatment or not, whether you just show up to your cardiologist or not, that anxiety is going to get a little bit better. Does that sound right? I think there was some variation around that. Some different articles said yeah. different things. But that was the impression I was left with. Mm -hmm. Sounds about right. Okay, so so... 
people that have these AICDs planted, uh, their anxiety increases sympathetic tone. Yeah. And relatively decreases parasympathetic tone. Pretend that I don't know anything about the effects of uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic <laughs> tone on the heart and why that's important. Walk me through that. Yeah, so I guess just starting sympathetic and parasympathetic. Sympathetic is fight or flight, and parasympathetic is really just the opposite. Rest and digest is what we say a lot of the time. I thought it was stay and play. Stay and play. <laughs> that can also be used. And so specifically when, specifically when we're thinking about the heart and sympathetic effects on it, we're going to see things such as an increased heart rate um, to try and circulate more blood through the body versus parasympathetic, it's going to slow it down more. All right, so increasing sympathetic tone increases the risk of arrhythmia. Yeah. Okay, so if we're, if we're watching our patients and they've had an AICD kickoff once before mm -hmm. and their anxiety is generally higher now, we've created a challenge. Yeah, it can be a potential challenge. Um, there can be a cyclic nature to it because if you, you activate your sympathetic nervous system, your heart rate's going to go up. And if you've been shocked before, if you've had heart difficulties, a lot of those patients are a little bit more aware of their heart. And so when they notice their heart rate go up, then it's going to trigger something in their minds. Oh, no, you know, like my heart rate's increasing. Is this an arrhythmia or something? Which will then stress them out, which can activate the sympathetic nervous system, which increases heart rate. And it just can be this cyclic pattern that can put them into an arrhythmia. Now, I was intrigued by the article from, is it Sears? I think it was Sears. Sears wrote, Sears is part of the Florida group, and they did a number of uh, very good studies. I need to look towards the mic while I'm talking. Um, but I think it was Sears who said, or maybe it was Frizzell, and I don't remember which. Um, it's fairly accepted that mood can affect the risk of arrhythmia, or at least anxiety. But I think some of the early articles we were reading in 2000, 2003, somewhere along those lines, it seemed like they were saying, and it looks like not only can mood affect the risk of arrhythmia, it looks like the opposite can happen. Arrhythmia can affect mood. Did you find anything that explained that? This might be a little tangential. Um, but one thing that I did see as I was going through is that how you perceive your health has a big effect on pretty much your quality of life and your outcomes. And so I, I know that numerous of the studies talked about how when they controlled for like um, left ventricle ejection fraction or pharmacotherapy with like beta blockers or things such as that, really it depended on the patient's perspective, how the patient viewed their own health with the likelihood of going to going into arrhythmias. I think there was also something about control over their health, right? Not just a view of their health, but I think if I remember the article correctly, that broke down into a couple of subcategories. I, I wasn't sure. I was left with the impression it was one of those internal versus external locus of control kinds of ideas. Yeah. If you're powerless against the world, you're vulnerable to the, any next shock that comes along and then it's over for you. Yeah. Whereas if you're of the mind that 
hey, I have some control over this. I can exercise. I can eat correctly. I can minimize the risks of this. Maybe that changes. Mm-hmm. Talk to me. So, so I'm not sure I had a good answer for the risk of arrhythmias causing uh, anxiety, but there was a study. Now, this was a fascinating study. Um, they, they, it was the study that was that showed um, classical conditioning. I think. Okay. Yeah. If I remember right, what they said was, "Hey, we can put in these um, AICDs, and maybe it wasn't that study; it might have been another one, and and we can look and see if somebody's anxious. Does that mean that they have an arrhythmia?" But I think what they also found it was really interesting because they said yes, but the other thing they concluded was, "And people that have arrhythmias are more anxious." Yeah. And it wasn't just because the AICD was kicking off. It, it, I think it comes back to the fear of death. Yeah, I think that, that classical conditioning model, because I think what would happen is, like you can see the classical conditioning when a patient experiences, experiences this painful shock, which is an unconditioned stimulus, and that then produces anxiety or fear, which is an unconditioned response. And so random stimuli like physical activity, if the patient experiences a shock during something like that, then they're going to be prone to more distress in the future when they're in a similar physical experience. And that can be anything from physical activity to just getting up and walking over somewhere else. It's so interesting because when you talk about going back to a similar setting, right, that's classic PTSD kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. This this situation brings back memories of the past. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the hardest parts about an AICD is how do you escape the traumatic stimuli, the the item that brings you fear when it's inside you. I, you just develop a learned helplessness. I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> I hope I, I, I have wondered a lot about that, though. I think it's a very challenging uh, issue. You mentioned quality of life. Mm-hmm. Everything I read across the board said people die without these. And yet there are people that really struggle. Um, I think one article made the case that it's not the AICD implantation that matters. It's whether you get shocked that matters, right? Yeah. There was something along the lines that said, I think it was the Cabbage Patch study that compared non-AICD patients to AICD patients. And what they found was quality of life was worse in AICD patients than non-AICD. But then if you do some uh, further analysis the AICD group that's never had a shock has exactly the same kind of outcome as the uh, cabbage without AICD placement, right? Exactly, exactly the same. Yeah. So it's the, it comes down to the shock. Mm-hmm. One article that I think highlighted the quality of life changes was the article that you said was your rabbit hole. Yeah. Tell me about the rabbit hole article and about the changes I, th- I think in a way you have somewhat about your fears that you had about arrhythmias, but I want you to go ahead and, and review that article, the, the under 50 is young article. I was a little bitter <laughs> about that. And, and yeah. tell me the meaning of quality of life in terms of somebody that has an AICD. Yeah. Um, so the article really talked about uh, a survey they did to really see what people's, were, people's concerns were that had AICDs. And... In it, I guess it really broke down into two di- different categories of concerns held by these patients with AICDs, which were one, perceived limitations from the device, and then two, device-specific concerns. 
And so perceived limitations, patients were afraid to like exercise because they thought doing so could set off the ICD. And so they wouldn't exercise like they used to or any activities or hobbies that they used to enjoy, they were afraid that would set off the ICD and so they wouldn't do it. Um, the device specific concerns is they were just afraid that the ICD was going to malfunction and just randomly misfire. And it does. And or, it does. I don't know if that's malfunction or a misreading but, of the conduction, right? Yeah. Or the, or the rate. Uh huh. I mean, it's not super common still, but it mm. is a valid concern that a lot of patients have. And so the quality of life, one way that they can measure it is they can look at are they able to enjoy the activities that they used to? Are they able to do the things that they used to? And a lot of the times they, they can do it, but they just have this fear, fear this, uh, um, I don't know, maladaptive paradigm that prevents them from doing things they really could do, but just don't think they can. So cognitive distortion, so to speak. Yeah. Hmm, I wonder where that's going. I don't know. Stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> I think that the perceived limitations came out of one of the scales that we looked at. Was it the IC, ICID scale or something? Um, you mentioned that this is an interesting scale because what it does is it takes these very real needs and how they're directly affecting a patient. And so I think, I think the scales are a good way to think about which specific item is my patient struggling with and mm -hmm. how do we tackle that so quality of life improves. Yeah. One of the comments that Sears made, and again, Sears was one of the guys out of Florida, and, and just to, to be straight up, Sears has made money from Medtronic, right? So he's, he's a Medtronic's device paid guy, mm -hmm. um, but I think he's also a cardiologist at implants the devices and is looking at a problem that could easily be ignored and tried to tackle it. So uh, in, in this case, I, I'm, I don't think that the industry bias is getting in the way of him reporting about this problem and hoping to solve it, which is kind of what I think he's doing, right? Yeah. Um, so so uh, Sears, in his review article, and I thought the, the article in chest, no, in heart, I thought it was well written. And it, I think what it said was there's still some uncertainty around the edges about prognosis with somebody who gets an AICD, the risk associated with the the shock versus multi-shock because you might have one shock and that might be different than multi-shock storm, right? He, he talked about all of these things, put them in a very good context. Um, and then I think maybe one of the key aspects of what he said regarding quality of life is there might be a proxy measure. There might be one thing we can look at and that's return to work. 63% of people return to work after AICD placement. Is that enough? Does that mean there's room for improvement? What does that mean? I mean, it definitely means there's room for improvement. I, I don't know, right? Because I, I also assume that many people have heart failure who ha are having arrhythmias and have the AICDs placed, and sometimes physical limitations are real, right? Mm. So I don't know what the return to work should be. I, I didn't have a good sense of that, yeah. of, of what it was. And, you know, I, I think it really depends on which percent we're talking about because the 63% are, are probably happy they get there, but the 37 who can't go back to work, might be. I'm sure they, they wish they could. Yeah, a lot of those percentages would be. Um, Treatment, we talked a little bit about use of SSRIs. Yeah, we talked about benzodiazepines for rescue. Um, TCAs would also be an option. Uh, CBT mm -hmm. is quite often used for panic disorder. Uh, in my mind, CBT is a therapy that looks at um, cognitive distortions that we have 
the relationship between our thoughts and our emotions and helps us to more correctly view the world, not in a kumbaya, hold hands, sing together way, but in a real way, right? Let's, let's be very brutally honest with ourselves and then try and see how our emotions line up with an honest assessment of the situation. So, so CBT would be identify cognitive distortions and try and correct those and see how that affects mood, right? It doesn't necessarily take away all the emotion or all the negative emotions. What it does is it aligns the emotions more accurately with the situation around us, right? That seems to be the basis of most of the work that's been done in treatment of panic disorder slash adjustment disorder slash depression slash anxiety slash PTSD. Did I miss one? that has been associated with the ICD placement. Talk to me about the various studies that you read. Yeah, so I guess just starting back with the uh, um, Young at Heart study, when we were looking at people under 50. Oh. <laughs> you, you, he's, you're saying that with a big smile on your face. Oh, you bet. So when we start there, we, we find the patient's um, concerns that they had. And a lot of them were just based on misinformation. And so starting with that, with the CBT, we can work to um, approach that with helping them understand where their cognitive distortion is so that we can modify that. And for me, it probably should have clicked earlier, but it didn't. But CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's a cognitive portion to it, which is adjusting and reframing these negative cognitions, this catastrophic cognition we have. But then there's also a behavioral aspect to it where we can... Um, reevaluate what coping skills we think we have and put in place really helpful coping skills. It's, it's really interesting because in a lot of ways it feels like the behavioral part of CBT has been de-emphasized in many ways. And one of the focuses, foci, that we have on the unit is to almost eliminate the cognitive part and focus on the behavioral part and then try and assess the outcomes associated with the behavioral changes. In other words, our patients that are struggling with um, hallucinations, voices, and so forth, when they are actively engaged in activities that are enjoyable, the, the hallucinations that are often tortuous disappear. So right, we can uh, then go back and say, when you were doing X, Y, and Z, what happened, right? And mm -hmm. the outcome is, is gosh, you know, I felt a little bit better. Hey, what would happen then if you were to do this when maybe the voices were really bugging you? How, how could you implement that? Yeah. Right? And so, so that behavioral part, I think, is often left out. And, and in this case, you're saying very specifically the behavioral part is get back involved in the things that have data for involvement. Don't be limited by things you think might be the case mm -hmm. or by your fears. Yeah. And in some of the studies I was reading, they were talking about how really it's important to focus on both the cognition and the behavioral because one follows the other and vice versa. And so in, in one of the articles, they were talking about how you can create a plan where if you have an inappropriate shock or an appropriate shock, you have a plan of what you're going to do after that so that you don't um, acquire maladaptive behaviors or anything. And at the same time, you have a plan, so something you're going to do, but you also have a way to evaluate like what happened and think through it all and think, is this appropriate? Am I responding okay to this? And so both of those strategies used together is just the synergistic effect. So that's what we would call a cope ahead in the DBT language, I think, too. <laughs> um, 
there were, I think, a number. So, so there were a couple of meta analysis. I, I didn't feel very uh, much like they did a good job of tackling the different ways of thinking about this. Right? It was just like, okay, everything that's associated with an AICD placement that is in the psychological realm, we're gonna throw a, a meta analysis together. Didn't love it. Yeah. We also saw some articles that were more specific. So, uh, how about web-based CBT? Tell me about that. Yeah. So. They, they were looking at how they can put on some kind of CBT program that's really accessible to everyone when they need it. And so the web-based CBT was from, there, there weren't a large number of participants, if I remember correctly, in this study. It's a small number. Huh? But they were able to see that it was actually just as effective doing the CBT over the web as it was just doing it in person for this specific concept for the... AICD. I, I didn't see if that was web-based with some sort of support access or if it was simply kind of like a workbook you could do on the web. Hmm. Did you did you see how that worked at all? I, I, I didn't figure that out very well. Okay. You're shaking your head no. No. For those of I you that are watching, those of you that are not watching on podcast. Um, CB, I think it was CBTSM, but maybe it's CBSM. Cognitive, cognitive Behavioral Stress Management. Stress Management. And tell me what that entails. Um, from what I understand, I think it's pretty similar to uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, but just in really looking to reduce anxiety, anger, perceived stress, you just learn how to use those cognitive and behavioral skills to decrease those emotions when you recognize them. So is this, it's, it sounds like to me, and I don't know, correct me, it sounds like this is a tool that's used to reduce that autonomic uh, versus, the, the sympathetic versus parasympathetic kind of tone. Yeah, kind of getting yourself out of that fight and flight mode to really using your brain and, and trying to understand it. Um, it looked like there was uh, some data that the effect was pretty good. The effect size was at least moderate in some of these studies, small studies. Um, but at least in some of the studies, that effect faded away pretty quickly. My impression has been that CBT itself the effect doesn't necessarily fade away. Any ideas why we saw some fading in these studies? I, I really don't know. I don't either. <laughs> All right. Um, fascinating topic, and one that uh, I think some of our more enjoyable topics come from experiences that students have had that led them to medicine. I think that's the case for you. I think in part you were led to medicine uh, by this, and. Um, my impression is you're a little bit passionate about the heart. Yes, sir. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, and you're headed that direction. I am. Uh, and you're hoping to be a surgeon or a cardiologist? Pediatric or cardiologist. Pediatric cardiologist and not pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. No, that, that's, that's a lot. Those guys are amazing, though. So I've got a... a uh, well daughter-in-law who's hoping to do that, which is pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Cassie. Shout out to Cassie at St. Louis University. So, um, What else have we not talked about that you would like to add at this point? I think one of the things I just would like to add is, as physicians, I think it's important to discuss and normalize fear and anxiety associated with AICDs or other um, implants like that, because it is scary. You know, it's 
And when you don't really understand all the biomechanics of it all, it's it's pretty novel and can be intimidating. And you're, you're it's, not it's okay. saying that with experience. No, not not <laughs> no. at all. <laughs> as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old. Um, as a three-year-old. First one I think was one week old, and then yeah. ten and sixteen. Uh, scary. Yeah. I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, it just. It's, it's normal. It's okay. And I think it's important to discuss that with patients because to discuss the fact that it's okay to be afraid or have anxiety about something. And that can honestly be generalized to anything. But when you do that, it just opens up a channel of communication so that patients can get help if problems do arise. In my mind, so there are a couple of things that went through my mind and, and feel free to say, uh, shut up. Or indulge me, right? Okay. So, so the first is uh, your mom is very psychologically minded. She is, yeah. Um, she's been a great influence on more than one social worker that has come through this area. Mm-hmm. And it seems like when you're talking about being able to open up that discussion, you're talking about your experience with your mom. Yeah, I, th- I think for me, so my mom um, is a clinical social worker and she teaches in an MSW program at BYU. And... So growing up with a therapist as a mother, I feel was invaluable going through cardiac um, difficulties because she taught me how to, you know, catch emotions and see and evaluate, you know, what they're making me feel and kind of learn to see them from a different perspective and see what behaviors I was doing that were good and what behaviors probably weren't as good, you know, that I could change to just be healthier and be happier as I was going through them. Wow, it's like you're talking about the cognitive triad of CBT. I didn't know that's what it was called when I learned it. (laughs) Ask your mom about it if she listens to the podcast. (laughs) Uh, The second question that came to mind was, um, I think all of us physicians are always working at being better at what we do. And undoubtedly, I have uh, done something which is an equivalent of what I'm about to describe. Okay, well, Devin, you know that you can't live without the AICD placement, so just be happy you can stay alive. Helpful? Definitely not helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's unfortunately, I've said things like that many times. Let me see if I can do more helpful. Uh, Devin, uh, you're having, tell me about how your emotions are now that you have the AICD. It can be pretty scary. Yeah, that would definitely be a lot more helpful. And how do you, how do you then say, Devin, how, how do you weigh the value of staying alive versus, you know, this really, this thing hurts when it goes off. You're going to hurt, potentially. How, how do you weigh those things? As a patient or a provider? How do you ask the question? Yeah. How do you ask the question? Honestly, just my first thought was just being honest. Like, I mean, healthcare is a team sport, you know, and the patient is part of that team. And so is there, I don't think there's one specific way necessarily to ask it, but I think as long as you're including them in the, in the process and mm-hmm. pointing out how they've succeeded and how they're doing better from where they've been. So, so I, think, I think as a physician, I, wanna, I want to point out, hey, this is keeping you alive, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe just 
practice that enough times and you come up with it. I guess the, the best version I've come up with so far is, hey, hey uh, Devin, you know, this, this thing's probably keeping you alive, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Tell me how you're managing so that we can keep this device in you and keep you alive. Is that? That's awesome. That work? Yeah. Okay. I think that has some, some elements of motivational interviewing in it too, right? Because you're opening mm -hmm. up the discussion for how do you work forward so that you can keep keep the thing that's helpful. And it, it, it sort of along the lines of uh, Miller and Rolnick, right? The guys that wrote the book on motivational interviewing. Over and over, they when, when I read what they say and what I was fortunate enough to go to see Dr. Miller, they say this very important phrase, which is, the patients already know what they need to do. You're just helping them talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. I think that question opens up that discussion for, you know what you need to do. Tell me how you're going to do it that works for you. I like that. Um, anything else we need to address? You guys are, uh, for those of you that are watching on <laughs> podcast, <laughs> they are shaking their head no. So, so with that in mind, um, Christian, take-home points from this podcast? Anything that uh, is kind of what you are leaving the podcast with? So, yeah, just once again, high-yield facts about panic um, attacks or disorder. You're going to look for those somatic changes, so sweaty, fast heart rate, things like that. Recurrent, no triggers. Um, Affects behavior. Yeah. Stops going out. Yep. Okay. Anything else? tip for me, Devin? I think for me, the biggest takeaway is like when treating cardiac disease specifically, there's the physical aspect that you always need to take care of, but there's also a psychological aspect that you need to make sure you address as well. And I don't think that's always addressed as thoroughly as it should be. That's interesting. I, I'm of the mind that most psychiatrists don't recognize how gifted physicians are that treat physical illness and how often they do address these things that are incredibly important. Um, I think there is some data that we read that suggests that there can be a better job done by uh, people that are, are taking care of patients with AICDs. But I'm also very impressed with how much work is being done in this area, right? There's a lot of attention to this. So, um, as, a, as a bystander and somebody that doesn't do nearly well enough keeping up on my non-psychiatric medicine, um, I'll be very glad for, for all the people that are in the game together with me and, and that are simply caring about the quality of life of our patients, right? There, there, are, there are outcomes that are meaningful. One is life and death. That's a, a, probably our biggest measure, right? And then quality of that life afterwards is a pretty high, a, a, a pretty high importance to me. So I like both those take-home points. Um, Devin, I'm, I'm going to break tradition just a little bit. Okay. And uh, even though you've both given me your take-homes, uh, I want to ask about a nickname. All right. <laughs> so quite often, I think you've noticed that I, um, I hope I'm not malevolent, <laughs> but I might uh, tease my students quite a bit. Does that sound right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you teased me back. Oh, you betcha. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I opened up the door for it and I deserved it. <laughs> and, and I appreciate that. You were nicknamed. I was. So, so, so in, in a moment of teasing, and every once in a while we've done this, but usually we don't have patients take us up on this, 
we invited a patient to either learn your name or just give you a nickname. You had a nickname that stuck. I did. First day. Stuck quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> do you want to tell us about that nickname? I do, yeah. So first day we were here. Hi. And, and don't use names for patients. I won't. Okay. I won't. Uh, go uh, ahead. Yeah, first day we were here, we had a patient who uh, was giving us all nicknames, and he looked at me and he said, Sonic, you're Sonic. And so I thought it was pretty cool and stuck with it, and there are definitely some of the staff here who don't actually know my real name. They call me Sonic still, and I introduce myself as Sonic, and I love it. It's great. We had a lot of fun with that, and I appreciate you being a good sport with that. Um, gentlemen, very interesting topic. I enjoyed learning about this more than I had known before. One of the most challenging patients I saw in an ER setting was somebody who was having unstoppable panic attacks associated with an AICD defibrillation event. And I had no tools or understanding on how to address it. Um, every once in a while, good things happen to us as physicians. And sometimes those are easy to forget. It's pretty easy to remember the times that you failed what feels like you know, afterwards miserably. Despite your best effort, it's sort of like one of those things where you wish I had a do-over, I wish I had this kind of information in my hands. Most of the stuff we read today or, or read in preparation for this was published after I saw that patient. So I'd, I'd like a little bit of a, a pass. But I, I, I think you guys hit a great topic, and it was one that I'm, I'm glad to be able to go back to and pick up a little better, and I appreciate that. Thank you. On that note, gentlemen, team out. You guys are supposed to say, you're supposed to say team out after I said it. Should we do it again? Yeah. Let's do it again. On that note, team, team out. out. <laughs>